This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. John chapter 10, a little bit different type of message in the fact that we're not staying in one passage of Scripture and kind of plowing through it like we normally do, like we did this morning uh, in the book of Romans. Uh, Instead, we're actually taking a look at several different passages of Scripture, so I want to encourage you to have your Bibles ready uh, to turn. Also, I want to encourage you, if you're in the habit of writing in your Bible, which I highly encourage, make note of these verses as we go through them because they're going to be really important for us uh, as we try to give people not only assurance of their salvation, but also show them from the Bible how they can be certain that they will never lose their salvation. And so, this is uh, week three of three. If you missed any of the previous message, you can listen to that on the Hui Kala podcast, uh, available also on the Hui Kala app or Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast out, we're there. <laughs> if you want to catch up any, on any of those that you missed, <coughs> goodness, there we go. Welcome to do that. Thanks. Um, John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I shall give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Now, again, if these were the only two verses in all the Bible, three verses in all the Bible that talked about eternal security, this would be enough. But the Bible's full of, of literally dozens of verses that point to the fact that you and I cannot lose our salvation, and we should stand secure in that. Nothing more disheartening than to ask someone, hey, if you died today, are you 100% sure you're going to heaven? And they say, well, I'm 98% sure because you can't be really sure. Well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says uh, that these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 1, 13. God wants you to be secure in your salvation. God wants that to bring you peace and comfort during these times. Uh, Paul uh, tells the church at Thessalonica, hey, whenever someone passes away, let us not uh, worry and labor like those who have no hope. We don't grieve like those who don't know that there's a heaven, but because we know of the blessed hope, not only of heaven, but also the coming of Christ, we can rejoice, and he says, comfort one another with these words. There's not a lot of comfort if you don't know for sure that you're going to heaven. Not a lot of peace to be had if you don't know for sure that you're going to heaven. And so, again, we need to be 100% sure that we're saved. And when we're certain in that, we need to stand in that assurance. Authentic salvation is found in faith and repentance. I need to recognize my sinful condition. I need to put my faith in Jesus as the only person that can save me. And I need to turn from my sin. Now, the, the word repentance is the Greek word metanoia, which means to turn away from or to change one's mind. And to come to faith in God, I have to change my mind that I am right, that I don't need a Savior, that I don't, don't need to turn from my sin, that my sin is okay. I must change my mind to agree with God in the fact that my sin is lethal. 
My sin will kill me and take me to hell. I have to agree with God, and that requires repentance. And that's what the word repentance means. A change of mind, which results in a change of heart, which results in a change of action. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. That's it. Believe, receive, saved. Simple as that. So many times people try to overcomplicate this. Oh, you need to have good church attendance or you need to do religious works. Maybe you should get baptized. Maybe you should take communion. Uh, These things will save you. None of those things will save you. It's Christ and Christ alone. Faith in Christ alone uh, is the only thing that can save us. Eternal life, how long is it good for? It's good for eternity. John chapter 5, verse number 24. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And get this, John 5, 24, it's in your notes. And shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. So again, if we're past, if we cannot come into condemnation, that's, that means a pronouncement of guiltiness on us and uh, sentenced to hell. That's what the word condemnation means. If we're not going to come into condemnation because we have eternal life, and now we pass from death unto life, We can't ever be under condemnation again, and we can't ever be dead again because we've been made alive. And so again, we see here that eternal life is good for eternity. Jesus says in John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. How long is everlasting life good for? Everlasting. It's not good until you sin again or you sin too much again and then it gets taken away from you. That would be temporary life based on terms and conditions. But God doesn't give us that. He gives us unconditional forgiveness. Genuine salvation saves us from future punishment. John 3, 18, Jesus says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus lays it out really clear, black and white. If you are without faith in Jesus, if you have not been saved, you are under God's punishment, condemnation. God tells us really clearly what that condemnation is. It's death and hell. That's what we deserve. And so by being saved, putting your faith in Jesus Christ saves us from future punishment, future condemnation, Later down, uh, turn here to John chapter 3, if you would, right quick. I want you to see this verse. A couple of ones I want you to, to circle as we go through this. If you pay attention on Sunday mornings, and I hope that you do just about every week or every other week at least, I quote John 3, 3. I would circle that in your Bible. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says the only way that you're getting to heaven is by being saved. That's what John 3, 3 says. And then God, John goes on to clarify for us at the end of John chapter 3, verse number 36, and says, he that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Now again, here's a promise that we have life, and that life is good for eternity. But he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now God's wrath is his righteous anger and punishment for sin. And so if you're without Jesus Christ, God's wrath is abiding on you. The moment that you take your last breath here on planet Earth, you will endure God's punishment for all of eternity. Unless you put your faith in Jesus, which is what we want 
every single person that we come in contact with to know how they can know Jesus. Genuine salvation cannot be lost. I want to put this in clear terms. Once you're saved, you're always saved. And again, this brings peace, knowing that God will never abandon me. Jesus says he'll never leave us or forsake us. Not, I'll never leave you or forsake you as long as you do your, your part, as long as you keep up your end of the bargain, as long as you don't sin too much, I'm, I'm willing to be with you. No, no, no. He's saying, I'm going to be with you through this. Again, if we need further clarification from this, we just need to take a look at the Old Testament, the children of Israel. God promised to be their God, and he promised that they would be his people. And as they sinned against him, as they rebelled against him, God never broke his covenant, he never broke his promise, and he continues to have his hand of blessing upon the nation of Israel to this day. Now, he's angry, he's frustrated, his patience is running out, judgment is coming for sure, but God has never broke his promise, and he never will. This is the one that, that really, as a, as a, a Christian and a theologian and a Bible preacher, this is the one that really gets me. An attack on eternal security of the believers, an attack on the greatness of the Father. It denigrates the work of Jesus and takes away power from the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's an attack on the greatness of the Father and the fact that God is willing to save you as long as you do your part. Well, that's not really unconditional love, is it? That's not grace if I have to do good works to maintain it. I don't get saved by grace and then maintain my salvation through works. And so the Father is so great in his mercy and his love and his grace towards us and the fact that he saves us by grace and he keeps us by his grace. To say that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross to save my soul and yours is only enough to get our foot in the door, and after that, we've got to do our part to keep up that end of the bargain, because Jesus' blood that was shed was good enough to pay that initial price of sin, but you and I need to make sure we do our part to cover the rest of it. Look, we don't sing a song called Jesus Paid Some of It. We pay, sing Jesus Paid It All. Jesus paid the majority of it. The rest I'll take care of myself. No, 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 no. That denigrates the work of Christ on the cross. The blood of Christ isn't as valuable as we say it is if it cannot cover all of our sin. The work of the Holy Spirit must not be that great if we're only sealed, not till the day of the redemption like we're promised. We're only sealed until we backslide or fall into too much sin, whatever that might be. How great is the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit can't seal us until the day of redemption? It's, a, it's an attack on the Trinity now, questions we have to ask if people would say, oh, you can lose your salvation. Now, again, a lot of times when you talk to people, they, they struggle with the idea that we can sin against the grace of God even willingly and still be saved. Uh, for those that are unfamiliar, this is very popular amongst uh, Pentecostals, the idea that you can lose your salvation. Um, there's a, a couple of large churches here on island that are uh, Pentecostal but kind of have a veneer on the outside that they're non-denominational. Uh, New Hope would be one of those. Uh, New Hope Christian Center, I think is what they're called. They're not even necessarily named a church. They're a four-square Pentecostal church, and if you're curious to what that is, you should totally look it up online because it's fascinating. Uh, Inspired Church out at Waikeli, big, huge uh, church out there by the, the uh, UFC gym out there, uh, four-square Pentecostal church. Uh, now, they don't tell you that. There's no doctrinal statement on their website that will lean towards that, but that's precisely what they are. And if you dig a little bit deeper, you'll find uh, at those churches, they believe that you can lose your salvation. 
I saw a video on, online one time that they were, were celebrating the fact that 15,000 people accepted Jesus Christ as Savior uh, at one of their locations. One of their locations. It's just like, okay, uh, I might not agree with what you got going on, but 15,000 people being saved is a big deal, and I want to know more about that. 15,000 people accepted Jesus Christ, 125 of them for the very first time. Oh, I see what you did there. I see what you did there. We're like double counting, triple counting, maybe even somebody got saved the same, same year 52 times. Or once a week they got saved. Uh, because if we can lose our salvation then we get it back again, I guess we can count that uh, as another uh, statistic for uh, our end of the year statistics that we have. Now again, if we could lose our salvation, that's a major, major big problem. So the idea of losing your salvation is very popular amongst Pentecostals. Uh, it's very popular amongst those uh, who would hold to a, a hardcore Arminianist view. Sometimes people ask you, like, are you guys Calvinists or Arminianists? We're neither. We're Biblicists. Uh, and so uh, I don't fall in line with a, a checkbox of doctrinal uh, ideas we should subscribe to. We're just going to go with what the Bible said. Hardcore Arminianists, uh, kind of their last view of it, uh, th they would be uh, the opposite uh, on the spectrum of, of Calvinists, per se, in the fact that uh, there's free will of mankind, and we have the ability to choose God. Uh, every person has the ability to do that, and they're held responsible for their own choice before God. And kind of the last point of Arminianism uh, is that true believers will maintain their faith until the end, uh, and basically if you fall into sin or something like that, you're not saved. And it's just like, well, I was with you for a minute on some of those things. But so, again, that's why we don't subscribe to uh, one particular thing or the other. Sometimes people are like, well, does your church hold to the London Covenant of 1692? I have no idea. I've never read it before. I really don't. I'll read it to you and tell you what I think of it. But, like, do we subscribe to that? No, we subscribe to the Word of God. Like, like you want to know why we believe what we believe? I'll point you to a chapter and a verse why we believe what we believe and why we do what we do. I don't know anything about any confessions of faith or covenants or, uh, you know, anything like that. I'd be happy to read through them and see what they say and find out if they line up with the Bible or not. And I'll tell you this, they line up with the Bible, I believe it. But we, again, you'll, you'll find this idea that the lack of eternal security is popular among certain types of groups or certain types of churches. And the questions that we have to ask in line with Scripture with this, I've given you, uh, at the end of this, it'll be a total of 20 questions over three weeks that we've taken a look at. Uh, the first question for tonight is this, how can we be saved and kept by the work of Christ, which does not depend on any human effort, yet lose that salvation and security by human effort? If you did nothing to gain it, how can you do anything to lose it? And so again, we can all agree that we were not saved by our human effort, guaranteed. So could we be kept by human effort? That seems to go against the idea of grace. Jude 24 says, now unto him, get this, that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Unto him, God the Father, who is able to keep you from falling and present you to himself. He's going to keep you from falling, not you and I. I can't keep myself from falling. I'd fall over every single time I got the opportunity if it was up to me. And so if we're saved without any human effort, how can we be kept by our salvation human effort and lose that? Lose the security, lose the salvation by what we've done. The answer to that is you can't. Next, if one is born again by an incorruptible seed, how can they be corrupted and die spiritually? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 23. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth 
forever. So if we're born again by an incorruptible seed, how can we become corrupt? If the word of God is good for eternity, which it says it is, and that's how you and I are born again, born again by the incorruptible seed, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever, how can we die again if we're born of an incorruptible seed? It goes against the whole idea of what incorruptible means. And the answer to that is you can't. How can one be a new creature in Christ and then become an old creature again? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. At what point does the new thing become old again? At what point does the new man die and become the old man? We don't find that anywhere in Scripture because that's not the process that we go through. Again, as we look through the pages of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, we never find one single solitary person who is born again, again, ever. We even read through the book of, of 1 Corinthians, one of the, the most carnal churches in all of biblical history. And no one is called to be born again. No one is called to be saved. They're called to repentance. And Paul calls them, get this, brethren. That's a familial term for those within the body of Christ. And so he doesn't see them as unsaved, heathen people. He sees them as brothers and sisters in Christ who need repentance and so the idea here of being a new creature means the old person has passed away. All things are become new. Next, if we're declared righteous in Christ, how can we be declared guilty again? If we're declared righteous without the deeds of the law, how can the deeds of the flesh condemn us after we are in Christ? Romans 3.28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Again, the word justified is a beautiful, rich Bible term. It means my sin placed upon Jesus Christ, his righteousness placed upon me. The word justified in the Greek language carries the connotation of right clothing. You and I are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was burdened down with our sin, and he was punished as a result of it. And he took his righteousness and placed it upon us as our sin was placed upon Christ. And you and I stand righteous before our Father. Now the question becomes, is Jesus Christ's righteousness good enough to cover my sin in the future? If it's not, how far does it go? And if it's not, is Christ's righteousness all that valuable after all? If you and I can corrupt the righteousness of Christ then what good was his sacrifice on the cross for our sin? Again, when we, we, you, you trace this out to where it goes, the idea that Christ's righteousness is not enough to cover our sin is simply a blasphemous statement. The blood of Christ wasn't valuable enough. The righteousness of Christ, which we are clothed in, was not good enough. Galatians chapter 2, verse number 16, knowing that man is not justified, declared righteous by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So we can't do the works of the flesh to be declared righteous. Only Christ and his imputed righteousness to us makes us righteous. So how can our works of the flesh 
corrupt this imputed righteousness? The, the answer is it can't. Either we're declared righteous by the work of Christ or we're declared unrighteous and guilty by the works of the flesh. When we begin to mix the two, we've gone astray somewhere. We've run afoul of doctrinal error when we try to take the works of the flesh and put them together with the work of Christ together. You negate the work of Christ when you add the works of the flesh. Next. How does the spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead make us alive, but then allow us to die again spiritually? Romans 8, 11. But if the spirit of him that raised Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken. That word quicken means made alive. Shall also make alive your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. So our bodies that were once dead, our spirits that were once dead, Christ makes alive. We now have a connection with the Father. By what? By the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. That same life-giving spirit that caused Jesus Christ to stand up on his own two feet and walk out of the grave on his own power. That same spirit, the Bible says, resides in us and is what makes us alive in Christ. So how does that die again? Because Christ didn't die. The Bible said he made a sacrifice once and for all, ascended to heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father. So if Christ is alive forevermore by the Spirit of God, how can you and I be made alive by the Spirit of God and then die again, spiritually speaking? Is there a sin that's so great that you and I could commit that we would now have lost our salvation? Is there a sin that you and I could commit that would negate the work of the Holy Spirit? Absolutely not. Uh, Romans chapter 5 tells us where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. Next. Why would God chasten his children if he disavows them? He wouldn't chasten, he would abandon. And if he abandoned, he wouldn't chasten. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 8 tells us what happens when Christians sin against their father. They're chastened. The Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. If you've never experienced the chastening of the Lord, I would question whether or not you're saved. Because the Bible says, everyone that the Father loves chastens. And here's what it goes on to say. If you endure not chastening, then you're bastards and not children. The word bastard means a fatherless child. It's a harsh word that we would use in our current vernacular. But in Bible terms, it was an equally harsh term. It just didn't have a vulgar connotation to it. It basically meant like, hey, hardcore, like you don't even have a dad if you don't endure chastening. And the Bible says that chastening isn't pleasant, but it's necessary to bring forth good fruit in the end. So here's the question. If you and I sin against God and God negates our salvation, kicks us out of the family, takes his Holy Spirit from us, and leaves us alone, then what's the purpose of chastening again? The whole purpose of chastening is for God to discipline, spank his own children to bring them back into a right relationship with him. If he's disavowing his children, he has no one to spank. If God disavows those who fall into sin, then there's no need for chastening because the Bible says that the Lord only chastens his own. I, I don't spank other people's kids. I spank my own kids. Why? Because they belong to me. Your kids misbehave. Uh, I look at you and I laugh. Um, 
glad they're not my kids. Um, why? Because I'm not responsible for them. Because they don't belong to me. If God doesn't chasten, it's because they don't belong to him. But if you lose your salvation for poor behavior and you're disavowed, there's no purpose in chastening because you don't belong to God anymore anyways. So the idea that God would disavow, abandon, remove, revoke someone's salvation goes against the idea of chastening. You have to either have one or the other. You can't have it both ways. And so again, there's no biblical proof anywhere in Scripture that your salvation is lost, but there's a lot of biblical proof for chastening. So again, we have to read what the Bible says, not what we've been taught or what tradition tells us or what my grandmother said to me one time when I was a kid. I have to follow what does the Bible say. And again, when we look through the Bible, we find faithless adulterers, Abraham. We find murderers, Moses. We find adulterers and murderers, David. And what do they do? God takes them through a difficult valley, and then he brings them back to a right relationship with him through repentance. Again, God loved David dearly. The Bible describes him as a man after God's own heart. David impregnated a woman out of wedlock, had her husband killed. And then when the baby came, what happened? God's just like, that kid's not going to live. That's your penalty. That's my chastening. And what did chastening do in David's life? Sackcloth, ashes on his face in front of God. And they come and tell him that the baby's died. He gets up, he washes his face, takes a shower, puts his clothes on, and he writes Psalm 51 and tells us what repentance looks like. And God welcomes him back in into a loving relationship. God didn't cast David off. God didn't say, okay, you need to be saved again. You need to be born again. No, he took him to a place of chastisement so they could bring him to a place of repentance. This is the, the, usually the number one question that I have for people who think that they can lose your salvation. If one crosses an invisible line and loses their salvation... Where is this incredibly important line, and how will one know when they have crossed it? Why does Romans chapter 6 encourage Christians not to go back to their sin, but never warns them of condemnation if they do? So again, if I'm going to lose my salvation, where is that line? If I skip church on Sunday nights, do I lose my salvation? Well, no, that's not really that bad. If I skip church on Sunday night and go out and get drunk, well, maybe. If I go out on Sunday night, get drunk, and get high, would that do it? Well, you're pushing the line. Okay, where's the line then? Did getting high push me over the line, or did it just get me closer? I'm not really sure. Nobody knows. If you, quote, fall into sin, I hate that phrase because nobody ever fell into sin. They walked into it, okay? You, you chose to sin against the grace of God. Nobody fell into it like, oh, well, I missed a step, and I just fell into sin. Um, well, if you fall into sin or you backslide, then you've lost your salvation. Be careful with that term backsliding. Backsliding simply means that there was one point in your life where you're closer to God than you are now. Sometimes people say, well, I was closer to God when I was in college than I am right now. You backslidden. Does that mean you've lost your salvation according to those who would say so? I don't know because it's this arbitrary line that no one knows where it's at. And what does that do? That causes confusion. Right? What does the Bible say about confusion? God's not the author of confusion, right? What is he the author of? 
peace. Is there peace in not knowing for sure if I'm going to heaven or hell? Is there peace in wondering if that thing that I did a couple of weeks ago was enough to negate my salvation? There's no peace in that. There's no comfort in that. God is not a loving, gracious God if I think at any minute he's going to split hell wide open with me because I messed up too bad. That's not love. God never intended for you and I to live in deep-seated terror of his condemnation. That's why, again, it says again and again and again and again, you that are saved are no longer under condemnation. You'll never see condemnation because God wants you to have peace with that. The entire chapter of Romans chapter 6, turn over to Romans 6 if you would. I want you to see this. Let's back up to Romans chapter 5, verse number 20. Uh, Romans 5, 20, you should circle, star, underline your Bible. This is, it's a great promise of God's word. Romans 5, 20, moreover the law entered that the offense may abound. God gave you rules so that you would see how bad of a sinner you are and your sin would be big, so big that you could not deny it. That's what that means. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. What does that mean? That means if you and I sin a little, God's grace is a little and a little extra. That regardless of how big your sin is, the grace of God will always be greater. You and I cannot outsin the grace of God. You and I cannot reach a point where God says, ah, I'm done, no more grace for you. God will always give you more grace than necessary, always. Now, again, I had a conversation with a Pentecostal man several years ago, and he goes, well, you know, you're taking that verse out of context. Oh, am I? Let's read the, the verses before and the verses after. We took a look at the context and find out that it adds up. And he's like, I don't like that verse. <laughs> okay, why? Because it makes it sound like you can just sin as much as you want and get away with it. And, and I don't think that's right. I think that, that, again, God's justice requires that a payment should be made when you sin. Oh, you just opened up a whole new can of worms that I don't think you wanted to open here. First of all, yes, a payment must be made for our sin. Who paid it? Jesus Christ did. And so we go on, verse 21, that sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So again, we can sin however much we want to and just get away with it and still get to go to heaven. So verse number one in chapter six says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? So what should we do then? Should we just sin as much as we want and just expect God's grace to continue to cover it? God forbid. This is a strong exclamation in the Bible. Like it's one of those like, I cannot even believe that you asked that question. It's so obvious. God forbid is like a strong statement. It's like an exclamation. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Sometimes people ask me when I'm going through the gospel and they say, okay, if I accept Christ as Savior, can I still get drunk? I guess you could, but why? The idea is that when you get saved, you'll no longer want what that has to offer. Well, if I get saved, can I still have sex with my girlfriend? (laughs) 
yeah, I guess you could, but why would you want to? That's usually an indication that there's not really a heart of repentance yet. When people begin to ask questions like that, they're looking for loopholes, right? Hey, I want to go to heaven, but I want to hang on to my sin. It's just like, ah, you can't do that. And so I always caution people with that. Hey, look, I'm not saying you've got to be perfect, but I'm saying you cannot continue to live in your sin on purpose. Will you sin? Guaranteed. But we don't go looking for sin, that's for sure. And so this verse here says that if we're truly saved, if we're truly born again, we won't have a desire to continue to live in our sin. And really the rest of chapter 6 here talks about Verse number 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that you should obey the lust of the flesh. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, that your members as instruments of righteousness for God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. So again, we see these statements here. It's really important, verse number 13, in this whole conversation that we have from Romans 6 is this. Don't yield yourself unto unrighteousness. Yield yourself unto righteousness. You know what that means? You got a choice. It's not automatic. It's not guaranteed. You got to make a decision for yourself whether you will follow unrighteousness or righteousness. Notice here he does not say if you choose unrighteousness, you lose your salvation. If you choose unrighteousness, you're no longer part of God's family. If you choose unrighteousness, you no longer have the Holy Spirit of God in you. No, he's just like, hey, we don't do that. You know why? Verse 13, yield yourself unto God as those that are alive from the dead. For sin shall not have dominion over you if you're not under the law and under grace. Well, look, sin doesn't get to call the shots anymore because we're not trying to follow a list of rules. We're trying to live under the grace of God. Now, again, for some people, that sounds contrary. Like, oh, great, we don't have to follow rules anymore because we're under grace. Yes and no. Do you have to fulfill the law and the Levitical feasts and ceremonies and things like that? No, we don't. Do you need to live in obedience to God's word because you're under grace? Absolutely, 110%. But here's the crazy part about it. When we're under grace and not under the law, I'm not thinking to myself on a daily basis, did I do this sin, did I do this sin, did I do this sin? I got a list of like 28 sins that I can't do. If I'm under grace, I'm growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and I'm just trying to live every single day more like Jesus. And I'm not keeping a score sheet to see how I'm doing. I'm just trying to grow every single day to be better than I was yesterday because I'm under grace, not under the law. I'm not trying to figure out, did I hit all the boxes this week? I'm trying to figure out, am I growing to be more like Jesus Christ? And so Romans 6 blows out the idea that we would somehow lose our salvation because of our sin. It just says that you're making poor decisions if you do, uh, because sin shouldn't have any more dominion over us. Verse number 16 says it this way too in Romans 6. Know ye not that to whom ye yield your servants to obey, again, a choice that you make, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or obedience unto righteousness. So Paul says you've got a choice to make here. You can choose to follow sin, and what's going to follow you? Chaos, death, destruction. Or you can choose to obey God. Totally up to you, whatever you want to choose. And so just know this, Christian. Should you choose to sin 
it's 100% a choice on your part. You don't have to do it. People sometimes say like, oh, I just get stuck in the same sin over and over and over. I don't know how to get out. No, you cho- you, you're choosing that sin. No, I'm not. I promise I'd break free from it if I could. No, the Bible says that sin no longer has power over you, and you have chosen to yield yourself unto sin, unto death. That's your choice. Does God give you victory? 110% if you're willing to walk in that victory and walk in that righteousness that he gives you. And so, again, Romans 6 is written to plead with Christians not to continue to sin for fear of losing their salvation, but because it's what you've been set free from. It's like you're in prison and you get let out of prison and you're trying to find a way to go back in. You were in slavery and bondage. You got set free from the slavery and bondage. Why do you want to be a slave again? That's foolish. So again, to the person who says, well, can I get saved and still continue in sin? You could, but it defeats the purpose of getting saved, and so you, should just, you shouldn't get saved. Well, I want to go to heaven. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. Now again, we've got to be really careful with that because we're not the discerners of the heart. We're not the Holy Spirit. We can't tell where somebody's heart is and things like that. We just have to be wise in our conversations with that. If somebody says to me, hey, I don't want to follow Jesus. I just want to go to heaven. Can I pray that prayer? The answer to that should always be a resounding absolutely not. Jesus isn't just a ticket we punch to heaven and go on with our life the way that we want to. Jesus Christ requires not only to be our Savior, but also to be our Lord. That word Lord means master. He's the boss. He's in charge. He calls the shots. I take my hands off the wheel, and he's driving this 100% the rest of the way. Whatever he tells me to do, I'm going to do because I am no longer master. He is, and he is Lord. The Bible says that we are to be bond slaves unto Christ. That means we have no property. We have no rights. We have no will only to do the will of our Lord and master. Final question we got to ask in this, and again, if you take the last three weeks, we've got 20 questions that we've asked to those who would deny eternal security. What other gift is taken away for poor behavior? If one must maintain appropriate behavior, it would be a reward and not a gift. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 by grace, you say, through faith, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Any other gift that you receive for good behavior is not really a gift after all. It's actually a reward. For those of you who have been in the military, you receive an end-of-tour reward or a mid-tour reward, or you did something really totally awesome, you get an award. You don't get that award as a gift, like, hey, we're handing these things out like candy. When I went through boot camp, they gave the uh, uh, National Defense Ribbon. It was, they called it the Boot Camp Ribbon. You didn't really do anything other than complete boot camp, and you got to wear the National Defense Ribbon. It was kind of a, a gimme, right? But by and large, most of the time when you get awards, you're rewarded for something that you've done, right? Salvation is not a reward for what you've done. <laughs> if anything, because it's a picture of grace, You should have been gone a long time ago, but God's choosing to give this to you anyways. So imagine a gift that's given to you that, hey, you got, there's some terms and conditions with this gift that I'm giving, otherwise you got to give it back. Well, that's not really a gift after all, is it? I often use this illustration when talking to people about how salvation is a gift. I got a pocket knife here. It's a very nice pocket knife. My wife gave it to me one year for Christmas. Um... If I choose to give this to somebody as a gift, I'm going to give this to Greg as a gift. Greg, I need you to take this uh, 
knife as a gift and my token of uh, appreciation and love for you. I just need you to wash my car at least once a week for 52 weeks, and then it's all yours. Gift, no gift. No gift, that's payment. We've got a transaction going on here. Greg, I'm going to give you this gift, but you need to make sure that you maintain perfect church attendance. Should you miss one Sunday, you've got to give it back. Nope, he's working for it at that point. Greg, I'm going to give you this gift. The only thing that I need you to do is get baptized first, and then you can have it. We've got a transaction going on here. But at what point I say to Greg, Greg, you can have this because I love you, and you can do with it as you please, no strings attached, that's when it becomes a gift. Now, if you misbehave, you've got to give it back. If you get into too much sin, you've got to give it back. If you cross the line, Greg, you've got to give it back. Well, where's the line? I'm not going to tell you. Hopefully, you'll know when you cross it. Uh, okay. Wouldn't feel really secure in having that gift, would he? Uh, might get that gift taken away. What other gift are there strings attached? What other gift do you have to pay for? I've never gotten a, a Christmas gift that I wondered like, oh, great, how much am I going to owe you for this? I don't know how much cash I have on me. No, it's a gift. Somebody gave it to me out of love and, and compassion. Now, I wonder when my kids give me gifts, like, I know you don't have a job, and so how did you pay for this? I probably paid for my own Christmas present. <laughs> a little bit different, right? But what other gift are you given that they might take back when you're done? It's not a gift. Man, if you retire and they give you a pocket watch for 20 years of service at the factory, that's not a gift that they gave you for your going away gift. You earned that. You put 20 years of your blood, sweat, and tears in it, you got a $75 watch as a result of it, you know? Sounds like a raw deal to me. That's not what gifts are. Gifts are given, no strings attached. Now, get this. What if... I give a gift to McKinley. I'm going to give McKinley this, this knife because McKinley's a really good dude. I like him. He's always got a smile on his face. He's always positive. He's always upbeat. He's always encouraging. So I'm going to give him this gift because I really, really, really like him. Question, is that a gift? Hmm. Let's scratch our head for a minute. Would I give it to McKinley if he was a dirt bag, never smiled, always negative, always unkind, and always a Debbie Downer? Would I still give him the gift? No. So is it a gift? No, I'm giving it to him based on merit because I like him. God's gift that he gives to you is not because you've been good, because you behaved yourself, because he really, really likes you, because you've got all these redeeming qualities inside of you, and there's this you on the inside that if we peel away all the negative layers, there's this beautiful you waiting to bust out and be free. No, no, no. You're rotten to the core. Amen. And he says, I love you and I want to save you. Amen. That's the gift. That's the good stuff. So again, when we add our own works, our own merit, our own value to salvation, we just ruin the equation. Whether it's being saved whether it's staying saved by our own power, we just ruin the whole thing. Uh, our ushers have a, a copy of uh, this card I want to give you. You can stick this in the back of your Bible. You can uh, take pictures of it and save it on the camera roll on your phone. Verses that deal with eternal security. I got, I got a page front and back for you. Uh, they're going to hand out to you uh, as we get these out to you. I just want you to have a reference card available. 
maybe you want to store this away in some digital filing system that you have. Maybe you want to put it on your fridge or something like that. It's just several of the verses that we've covered from this passage that deal with eternal security. It's one of the great promises of the Bible that God will see you through. God's going to make good on his promise. You might fail. You might blow it. But God's always faithful. You might hit a skid from time to time. You might even lose faith for a bit. God's going to keep his promise. Next Sunday, we're going to t- next Sunday night is our uh, uh, teen night. I'm really excited about that. The following week, we're going to take a look at the prodigal son and what the story of the prodigal son can, talk, can tell us about salvation, sonship. Tell us more about our father. The following week, we're going to take a look at, this is going to be exciting, apostasy. What happens when people say, I don't believe anymore. I don't identify as a Christian any longer. I don't believe any of the things that I once believed. What happens to them then? We'll take a look at what the Bible has to say uh, about apostasy um, three weeks from tonight as well. And so I want to encourage you with this tonight. If you are saved and you are a child of God, take great encouragement in that. Man, when my time comes and my number's up here on planet Earth, the Bible said, don't let us sorrow like those who have no hope. I know where I'm at, and we can rejoice together one of these days up in heaven, all of us together. Be encouraged by that. Be encouraged that if you hit a valley from time to time, you just can't seem to get it going. God's faithful in the valleys. He's willing to see you through it. And look, I want to encourage you with this as part of our church family. If you're having a bad couple of days or maybe even a bad week, just talk to somebody. Talk to your pastor. Talk to your small group leader. Talk to another brother or sister in Christ. Say, hey, man, I'm struggling. Could you just walk with me through this? Because if we don't take care of it, our weeks turn into months, and then our months can turn into a year, and we're just struggling, struggling, struggling. Nobody should do that. Nobody who's a part of the body of Christ and has... Tons of people around you that love you and care for you should ever struggle or ever feel alone. So if you find yourself there, let me know. I want to help you get through that and get over the hump because God is always faithful. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m.